0: Corbynism, What Went Wrong by Martin Thomas Chapter 8, page 15 Corbynism on the streets or not The biggest left demonstrations of the Corbyn years the big anti-Brexit demonstrations of October 2018 and March and October 2019 had some Labour politicians speaking including John McDonnell in October 2019 some CLP banners and, surely, many tens of thousands of left Labour Party members, but no official support or participation by the Labour Party. When Michael Foote, a very faded sort of leftist by then, became Labour leader in 1980, he quickly had the Labour Party organise large protests against unemployment, 150,000 in Liverpool in November 1980, 50,000 in Glasgow in February 1981, He spoke at and Labour parties mobilised heavily for the CND unilateral nuclear disarmament demonstration of October 1981, 250,000 strong, generally reckoned as the biggest demonstration ever in Britain to that date. In September 1982, Foote led a demonstration supporting a health workers' pay dispute Corbyn's Labour Party had a weaker record on street protest than Foot's, or even then Gateskill's right wing Labour Party of the mid nineteen fifties. In november nineteen fifty six, Gateskill's Labour Party organized a big demonstration in the biggest demonstration in Britain for thirty years since the general strike of nineteen twenty six, to protest against the Tory government's invasion of Egypt to retake the Suez Canal which had been nationalised by the Egyptian government. The next year, the London Labour Party called demonstrations on housing. Though Corbyn spoke at some protests, the Corbyn Labour Party organised no demonstrations in its own right. The period leading up to Corbyn's election had been one of low strike levels, but also one of big street protests. Maybe 250,000 joined the People's Assembly anti-cuts protest in June 2015. Paradoxically, and surely not because of any constraints outside Labour's control, the increased political mobilisation into the Labour Party in the Corbyn years went together with a decline in street protests over cuts the NHS and so on. Outside the leftist general election campaigns of 2017 and 2019, Corbyn's Labour did very little left wing public campaigning. There was always some level of anti cuts message, but not very vigorous. There were no coordinated campaigning against the major area of social cuts in those years in local government. There was not even the sort of campaigning which appeared briefly in the early Miliband years, in which some Labour councils made cuts but at the same time public appeals for pressure to make the Tory governments restore funding. Left-wing Labour councils were those who made fewer cuts, perhaps, had progressive procurement, used adroit financial manoeuvres to build or buy a bit of council housing. There were local campaigns against cuts, in particular councils, libraries, children's centres, etc., in the Corbyn years, with local Labour Party members taking part, but usually with support from only a harassed minority of Labour councillors. From the top of the Labour Party, the anti-cuts message often narrowed down into a focus on opposition to police cuts. This was particularly noticeable in the high profile and narrow margin by-election in Peterborough in June 2019, conducted with a Corbynite candidate and with a leader's office, by then having good control over the party apparatus. In all these ways, the Corbyn leadership and much of the official Corbyn left in the Labour Party failed to encourage working-class action, to get people to see union and street action as a way to win concessions, even while the Tories still ruled, and to nurture and draw in new industrial and community activists. The worst of that was Corbyn Labour's more or less complete failure to draw in and organise activists from the large pool of youth support for Corbyn, shown in 2015, 2017 and 2019. Chapter 9, on page 16, Labour and Young People in the Corbyn Period Anecdotally, Corbyn's most enthusiastic support in 2015 was among young people, In the 2017 election, around 62% of 18- to 24-year-olds voted Labour. Only 27% voted Conservative, figures from Ipsos-Mori polling data. 25% of over 65s voted Labour, while 61% voted Conservative. In the 2019 election, the difference was even greater, with a 43-point Labour lead among the youngest voters and a 47 points tory lead among the over 65s young people have long been more likely to vote labour than older people in british general elections though pattern goes back to at least 1974 probably further there were never before there has never before been so marked an age gradient few of the leftist young people joined labour by 2018, a survey of academics at Queen Mary University showed that only 4% of Labour's members were aged 18 to 24, a smaller percentage, though a bigger absolute number, than the Tories' 5%. Even the 25 to 34 age group, where a sizable minority must have been formed politically by the 2010-11 to 11 Student Revolt over Fears and Education Maintenance Allowance, had only 12% of Labour members, better than the Tories' 9%, but worse than the Lib Dems' 14%. The 35-44 to age group, where we might hope for numbers formed by the alternative globalisation movement around 2000, was no better represented, with 12% of Labour members compared to the Lib Dems' 17%. All Labour Party members were over 65 than were under 44. Labour members' average age was 53, and 56% of them were over 55. The median Labour member was pushing 60, probably someone who had been formed politically in late teenage and early 20 years, around the late 1917s and early 80s. Labour Party and left activity shriveled a lot from the 1990s up to 2015, so statistically that median member had probably been largely out of political activity for decades, beyond occasional demonstrations against the evasion of Iraq in 2003 or against austerity after 2010. Anecdotally, many returners would be retired or near retirement after job promotions which had made them more prosperous than they had been in, say, 1980, and with their children, if any, now grown up and no longer economically dependent. The Corbin era was, as we shall see, part of a distinctly new epoch of social media politics. It was also part of an epoch distinctly new in another way, the first time in human history that over 60s had been more prosperous on average than people in their 20s, and many of them still in good health. A 65-year-old may be more dynamic than a 25-year-old, but the 65-year-olds or 55-year-olds of the Corbyn levy had been politically trained, mostly by being out of political activity, apart from the occasional demonstration or such, since they were first formed politically as leftists in the 1970s or 1980s. It was a different sort of influx from the one the Labour Party had after 1979, dominated by young or early middle-aged people formed politically by and coming straight from activity in strikes, anti-cuts campaigns, anti racist protests, tenants' movements and university campus agitation. Political inactivity trains us politically just as much as political activity trains us, only in a different way, towards impatience with argument, a desire for quick answers from above, a propensity to be easily deterred by obstacles. It is possible to reverse that training. Some Corbyn era returners did that, but it is difficult, especially in the absence of a lively enough influx of radical youth to re-educate the older ones. In 2016, The 18-24 to age group among Labour Party members was the only one to return a majority for Owen Smith against Corbyn. Labour students remained under the control of the Blairites' labour rights throughout until it was officially de-recognised in September 2019. The student labour rightists used extravagant bureaucratic manipulation to keep their control, but they got away with it. There was no strong coordination of left-wing campus labour clubs to counter them. Most campus labour clubs remained weak and dull. The Momentum Youth operation paid little attention to campus labour clubs, or even to building young labour groups in constituencies, instead focusing on winning the machinery of young labour. Young labour was indeed taken over by the left. That was not a huge shift. A left-winger, Sam Tari, had been elected chair of Young Labour as far back as 2009-11. Young Labour sided with the left in opposing the Collins report in 2014. In the Corbyn years, a sort of left took over more thoroughly. One measure was London Young Labour. The left took over from the right at a conference in February 2018. The conference was marred by a Stalinistic behaviour from the left, aimed especially against workers' liberty, but in broad terms the left won. There were nearly 400 at the conference, convened by the outgoing right-wing leadership. The first conference under the new left-wing leadership in April 2019 had only 70 to 200 to 100 there, and managed to consider only one motion – a pre Brexit motion pushed through with almost no debate. Neither young labour nor labour students got anywhere near developing into the sort of open, easy-going, lively, friendly environment where which young activists need to check out political ideas and activities. Where they developed some activity, it was almost always of 20-somethings inhospitable to teenagers. Chapter 10, page 18 the Corbyn Leadership, Momentum, Youth and Activism On one level, what happened with Labour and young people in 2015-19 to, to 19 was a failure of the leadership. Corbyn, Macdonald and, and their associates, even without having much prior rank-and-file organisation behind them, could at all have promoted a large growth of young labour groups and student labour clubs by touring the country and speaking the Labour right could not have stopped them. Evidently, they were too preoccupied with day-to-day firefighting with their opponents among the MPs and the Labour HQ officials to do that, and their leader's office had no interest. What about the grassroots left? It started off weak, as the whole left was weak in 2015. The young Labour left was able to launch Labour Young Socialists, LYS, at a conference of 140 in September 2015, with workers' liberty a significant force in making it happen. The LYS faded. Its space was taken over by Momentum Youth and Students, launched at a not-much-bigger conference, 200, in June 2016, but with the impremature of Momentum. MYS at first had a committee fairly evenly balanced between the Stalinistic trends, whose record in London Young Labour was described above, and more LYS-type people. Over the next year and a half, the Stalinistic trends manipulated the committee, for example by adding a new regional reps to gain and hold control and rend down MYS activity until finally... NYS's social media, its chief self-expression, was cut off by the Momentum office in January 2018 as so grossly Stalinistic as to be embarrassing. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that more energy and vigour from us from the radical anti-Stalinist left, or just us being a bit more numerous to start with, could have made at least some difference back then. How much we can't know. The outcome was that a Stalinistic left, with lots of its leaders already embedded in the wonka sphere of parliamentary assistants, think tanks, NGOs, union political departments, etc., became a dead weight against the possibility of recruiting youth into Labour in any numbers. Overall, despite the Corbyn era, Labour Party's endless self-congratulation about how membership had grown, Its new mobilisation of activists was weaker and lower temperature than the aggregate figures suggested. There was much self-congratulation about numbers coming out to campaign for Labour in the 2017 and 2019 general elections. They were surely better than the pitiful turnouts in the Blair-Brown government years, but the scale even of Labour Party electoral activity, let alone of Labour Party campaigning on social and political issues, was in many areas weak compared to the 1980s, or even probably to to 1996-7. In 2018, the Queen Mary University study study cited above found that of those who were Labour Party members on paper, 41% had had no face-to-face rather than electronic contact with other Labour Party members although the survey was done straight after the 2017 general election, which must have mobilised some previously inactive people. Only 20% said they had frequent face-to-face communication. Asked how they had come to join, only 4% said they had joined because approached by someone from their local Labour Party, a much smaller percentage than for the Tories, 15%, or Lib Dems, 10%. 93% 93% had approached the Labour Party, that is, presumably electronically, on their own initiative. The democratic, demographic limitations of the Corbyn surge would weigh heavily. The first question in 2015, however, was about how the influx would shake out and be grouped politically. The demographic limitations shaped political limitations. Political limitations shaped the demographic limitations. Chapter 11, page 19, Corbyn and Socialism Lewisham for Corbyn, Sheffield for Corbyn, and similar similar groups had sprouted in 2015, the beginning of a regroupment regroup, of the left. The central running of the Corbyn campaign from mid-June to mid-September was ad hoc, understandably without formed democratic structures, but without bureaucratic facilities to local groups, often initiated by activists well to the left of the Corbyn inner circle. Jeremy Corbyn himself was well respected among left-minded activists and semi-activists, but for decades had, unlike the other best-known lefts, Labour MP John McDonnell, been much more an individual parliamentary dissident and a supporter of popular campaigns in his constituency than an organiser and ideologist with and among the left groups. I summarised his trajectory in an article in Solidarity 370, 3rd of July 2015. Corbyn had become a visible figure in the Labour left as it revives in 1979 writing for Socialist Organiser, a forerunner of solidarity. Then, quotes, he was a young union official and a left-wing Labour councillor in Haringey, North London, end quotes. Socialist Organiser was a campaigning paper with a wide range of contributors, but its broad coalition subscribed to much clearer and more radical ideas than the general broad left of the Labour movement, which in those days was dominated by the Communist Party and its influence. It called for working-class action to raise the capitalist system down to its foundations and to put a working-class socialist movement in its place to make the decisive sectors of industry, industry, social property under workers' control the coalition around socialist organiser broke up in nineteen eight over choices for left labour councils, then numerous, facing Thatcher's Tory government. We, the forerunners of solidarity, argued for them to use the town halls as platforms to mobilise for confrontation. Others argued for them to gain time by increasing rates, local property taxes, to offset cuts in central government finance. The core rate-raises, eventually in the late 1980s, went off to produce an alternative publication, Labour Briefing. Two rival journals of that name continue today. The main document in which they laid out their basis for splitting from socialist organiser was signed by those who had become the core briefing people and the one other person, Jeremy Corbyn. Yet Corbyn was less factional about the, the split than others. He wrote often for Socialist Organiser for many years after, then drifted away gradually rather than breaking with us. Quotes, in 1983, Corbyn became Labour MP for Islington North. He has been a consistent rebel in Parliament against the Labour leadership. His local record of support for workers and community struggles including against local Labour council administrations, is excellent. But Jeremy Corbyn's broader politics have changed. Today he writes regularly for the Morning Star, a paper linked to the Communist Party of Britain, which builds him as a friend of the star. People voting for Corbyn for Labour leader will be voting to support battles against cuts, to solidarise with immigrants and to uphold the right strike. That's good. But to build something solid out of it, we also need broader political ideas, and there the ideas in the spirit of the Morning star will undermine us as much as in 1979. Jeremy Corbyn is surely a socialist, but his articles for the Morning Star in his articles for the Morning Star he rarely or never says that. He calls for a popular movement against cuts. He advocates raising taxes for the rich, the very richest, collecting tax from corporations. But not social ownership of industry, not expropriating the banks, not workers' control. Corbyn rarely uses the word socialist, but he has commented on Chavez's Venezuela, Eva Morales's Bolivia, and Castro's Cuba as if they are more or less models of a future society. The model of a future society is one to which workers in a country like Britain could never be one, or if they were one to it, it would be a grievous sidetrack similar to the winning of millions of French and Italian workers after World War II to the USSR as a model of future society. Corbyn's reluctance to speak about socialism was probably connected with declining conviction that socialism, in any comprehensive sense, as distinct from signifying a social outlook and resistance to excesses of capitalism, was even viable or credible. In 1935, Hugh Dalton, soon to become chair of the Labour Party and then chancellor in the 1945 Labour government, wrote a book, Practical Socialism in Britain, to explain the official Labour Party programme produced as the party reoriented after Ramsay Macdonald's betrayal and Labour's defeat in the 1931 general election, a more crushing affair than in 2015 down to 52 seats from 287 in 1929. The goal was the elimination of private profit-making. Quotes, It is the chief historic aim of socialism to transfer to public ownership private property rights in the means of production there should also be workers' control. Only in a socialist society can labour cease to be a mere commodity, bought and sold in the market, hide and fired at the will of the boss. Only in such a society can the worker be fully endowed with human dignity and civic status. Dalton remonstrated against what he called doctrinaires, that, socialism is a quantitative thing, It is a question not of all or nothing, but of less or more. We may measure the degree in which any particular community is socialist by the relative extent of the socialised sector and of the private sector in its economic life. He presented the existing state structure, topsoil service, police, monarchy and all as a neutral instrument which could be used bit by bit to expand the socialised sector. Bit by bit was better because more practical. And anyway, Dalton insisted, the British people had, a distrust of logic, a distaste for doctrine, cults of the practical, gift for compromise. Neither fascism nor communism, he blandly insisted, could rise in Britain. Quotes, Neither a Savlatsvala nor a Mosley seems to find his spiritual home in British public life. End so workers should be patient and wait for Dalton and his colleagues to do things bit by bit. There was a, a definite aim for the bit by bit. Room was thus opened for others to argue that the state machine was not neutral, that the tiger of capitalism could not be skinned claw by claw, and that logic and theory. Was as necessary in Britain as elsewhere. From 1923 to 1987, even even in the right wing 1950s, Labour's manifestos always contained some vague promise of socialism as a vision, long-term aim, or guiding value. Quotes further achievements towards a really socialist commonwealth. 1924. Socialists provides the only solution for the evils. 1931. Ultimate Purpose, The Establishment of the Socialist Commonwealth, 1945. Policy Based on the ethic, Ethical Principles of Socialism, 1959. Program of Socialist Reconstruction, 1983. End when pragmatists and revisionists like Anthony Crosslands in the mid-1950s sought to remove Labour's notional commitments to bring all the commanding heights of productive wealth into public hands. They did so with the argument that welfare spending and trade unions' gains could bring society to a socialist condition of relative equality and the remaining privately owned sector in the mixed economy would be so hemmed in as not to disrupt that. In the the 2017 manifesto, the words socialist or socialism were not used at all. In the 2019 manifesto, socialism appeared once, and not to state a name, rather to describe what already exists in the NHS. There was no attempt to say the same thing in different words, either. As general summaries, we got only, for the many, not the few, a phrase coined by Tony Blair and real change, but who advocates illusory change? The official Corbynite-Labor-left momentum, too, spoke rarely of socialism. At most it would, and still does, call for transformative change. But what is that other than a way of saying transformative transformation, or just transformation, or just change? Even Starmer's new right-wing general secretary, David Evans is happy to recommend transformational change. <clears throat> the 2019 manifesto included a good few radical demands, but they were dropped into the manifesto only a few weeks before polling day and given a quick boost on social media with no substantial prior campaigning for them over the previous years and sometimes without even prior discussion of them at laboured conferences. No wonder many of those demands brought the reaction Sounds good, but they really mean all this. Does it hold together? The well-known academic economist, economist Jeff Hodgson wrote in 2016, Quotes: In 2015, Corbyn was reported in the Mirror newspaper as saying that socialism is an obvious way of living. You care for each other, you care for everybody, and everybody cares for everyone else. It's obvious, isn't it? I have little else to go on. Apart from the same gestures in favour of nationalization and some sentimentality for the pre Blair version of Labour's Clause Four, I can find no fuller account of what Corbyn's socialism means. The reader, especially if one of those who remember Hodgson as a socialist and a member of our own group at the end of nineteen sixties, will be put off by the smugness of his subsequent explanation that socialism is impractical because economic life is too complicated, and that recommending it can only produce, quote, a fanaticism that can crush all traces of liberal tolerance, end Hodgson, Hodgson does show that Corbyn's version of socialism provided much less traction and leverage for debate and enlightenment than did Dalton's of 1935, less too than Bernie Sanders in the USA, Sanders calls for an economy which works for the working class and the middle class. Middle class meaning in the USA, better off workers in stable jobs. Not just for big money interests. He calls for a political revolution and mobilisation. Not me, us. He is trenchant on central particular demands like single payer, healthcare and laws to facilitate union organisation. His platform is inadequate in Marxist terms and yet affords many hooks for further political development. Sanders' campaigning for since 2015 has spurred many young people to move beyond Sanders' own limits and towards more defined socialist ideas. There's something there similar to what Marx wrote about the big movements that developed briefly around Henry George's campaign for public ownership of land in the 1880s. Quotes, that the first programme of this party is still confused and highly deficient, that it has set up the banner of Henry George. These are inevitable evils, but also only transitory ones. The masses must have time and opportunity to develop, and they can only have the opportunity when they have their own movement. Theoretically, the, the man is utterly backwards, but his book is significant because it is a first, if unsuccessful, attempt at emancipation of the orthodox political economy, and also actually on account of the vast extent of big landed property, End By 2015, many mainstream bourgeois figures wanted to soften neoliberalism. Now Boris Johnson, Johnson blusters about levelling up. Corbyn was, of course, more drastically and credibly anti-austerity, but his stance did not breach a previously all-enveloping orthodoxy as dramatically as George's demands did in their own way. Corbyn's leader's office, once in post, never had the focus or consistency of campaign on pivotal demands that Sanders has had. The message was general, and with a cloudiness which afforded few ideological stepping stones. Corbyn did a debate at the Oxford Union on Socialism on 2013, and his speech can be heard on YouTube. He argues only for of universal health care, protection against destitution, and every child being able to attend school without payment, plus the general moralizing thought that socialism is about us, quotes, all caring for each other and supporting each other, end quotes. He counterposes this socialism not to actual contemporary capitalism with its actual, if any inadequate, schools and NHS and welfare benefits, but to Victorian free market capitalism with no public provision of any service. When challenged by a Tory about Stalinist Eastern Europe... Corbyn fends him off only by disavowing any wish to defend Stalin's strange views and not by explaining that the Stalinist counter-revolution created a class society as remote from socialism as ordinary contemporary capitalism, indeed more so. On the evidence, the Corbyn of 2015 had become heavily waterlogged ideologically by the decades in which the seas of Thatcherism and Blairism lapped around him so had many of those who would become his associates around the leader's office and many of those in the constituencies who returned to left-labour politics after 2015 that the corbyn surge started around limited ideas against austerity but not much more was inevitable given the previous decades large and strong political movements grew not on not on day by day immediate issues but mostly on big ideas, which can inspire and guide the sort of activism which persists, learns, and develops despite the inevitable immediate defeats. Corbyn's victory in 2015 opened new doors for discussing those big ideas, but pushing those doors fully ajar and filling the space behind, beyond them would have to depend on impetus from below, with little help from the above of the Corbyn leadership Page twenty four chapter twelve False Brothers The vagueness and lack of conviction in Corbinite socialism left it not only left it not only limited, but vulnerable to ideological colonialization by the false socialisms generated over the twentieth century, notably those shaped at one remove or another by Stalinism. This factor would be critical in Corbyn Labour's fiascos over Brexit and over anti-Semitism. Quotes, on some issues publicly and possibly on many privately, end I continued in my 2015 assessment. Quotes, Corbyn is better than the Morning Star. He supports Tibet's national rights. He opposes Russian seizure of Crimea and Russian militarism in U- U- Ukraine. In The Independent, 10 June 2015, he wrote, There are strong arguments for staying in the EU end quote, while making reasonable criticisms of the EU as it exists. But on international politics, mostly he limits himself to deploying, deploring military moves by the US and its allies and appealing for peace. So, for example, he expresses concern over human rights in Iran. He notes the appalling human rights record of the Syrian regime. He opposes Hamas's rocket attacks on Israel, and it seems, though it is not clear, to support a two-state settlement in Israel-Palestine. The result is with the more or less post-Stalinist but not fully Stalinist left of the era between the 1960s and 1989 to 91. Repression in the Stalinist states reprehensible invasions, bad. But they would shrug sadly at those things rather than denouncing them loudly because they said to might help the Cold Warriors, never be anti-Soviet. In truth, socialists need to oppose US and British imperialism and simultaneously denounce Stalinism with vigour, and some did. The sad-shrug approach only compromised and discredited the leftists who took that line and increased demoralisation after 1991. We should not copy the approach with Hamas in the pre- in the place of the USSR. Corbyn's main engagement with the organised left in the run-up to the 2015 election had been the Stop the Wall Coalition, SDW. He was involved from 2002 and chair of SDW from 2011 to 2015, stepping down when he was elected labor leader. In SDW, he worked with Andrew Murray, a Communist Party member, who became chief of staff for the Unite Union in 2011 and would later join Corbyn's leader's office with George Galloway and with Socialist Workers' Party people. The main ones, among whom would quit the SWP in 2011 to form a small group counterfire with an orientation closer to the Morning Star than the SWP, and a, and backroom work for STW and the People's Assembly as its main activity. STW organized big demonstrations in 2002-3 against the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Our chief criticism of its operation then is that it chose to promote the Muslim Association of Britain, a small group linked to the political Islamist Muslim Brotherhood, as co-sponsor of the protests, together with a campaign for nuclear disarmament, in whose inner circles the Morning Star was then influential. Between 2003 and 2015, SDW became a smaller group protesting not so much about the war as about US-aligned military operations, while silent about the wars of powers at odds with the USA.